0: It's been one of those strange days today folks. Um I started off uh this morning looking at a bunch of articles that accumulate um every night in my RSS feed. Uh looking at various things and the the you know all for this book I'm working on. And one of the, the key cert, keyword searches involves death. I'm always looking at interesting things about death and how doctors uh, choose to die versus how they advise their patients and you know all this kind of interesting angles on stuff. And there's an article on Slate that I read um, called uh, How Far Should We Go to Save Our Pets? And uh, the article's about the ethical dilemma around the fact that there are uh, treatment options available now that cost a lot of money and um, like w- what's the point of spending $5,000 on a on a treatment to save uh, a cat that's only going to live you know another four years at most and the article it says uh, that thanks to advances in met- veterinary medicine our pets are living longer healthier lives than ever before Um, But it's also become much harder to let them go. When our dogs and cats used to get very sick, we could justify putting them to sleep. Funny little expression, that. uh, Because it was the only option. But now, in the age of kidney transplants for cats and chemotherapy for dogs, euthanasia has begun begun to seem like a cruel way out. I can relate to this. Um, uh, Cassie and I had a cat in Spain. Oprah was her name. Little black kitten. We got her together with Mojo, who was a male at the same time. Both rescue cats. Um, And they were funny. They were really cute together. You know, Oprah was a little smaller, but she had all this attitude, which is why we called her Oprah, of course. And, um... You know, Mojo loved her and they used to chase each other around as kittens do and then sleep together all, you know, wrapped up in their little furry cuteness. And um, one day I was sitting out on the terrace and they were charging around and uh, I noticed that Oprah was running sort of strangely. I thought she just like banged into the wall or something in one of her maniacal escape attempts Um but it kept getting more and more noticeable over the next week or so. So I took her to the vet, and they did an x-ray, and the vet uh, basically said, look, it the nerve that goes from the spine down her two rear legs is misrouted. Instead of going through this hole in the bone where it's supposed to go, it's going between the, the hip bone in her femur or her, her, one of her leg bones. And so as she grows older, that nerve is going to get more and more pinched. And, um, you know, she's going to lose sensation in her back legs. She's going to lose the use of her back legs. And, uh, well, there's, you know, experimental surgery that will cost about 4,000 euros. And, you know, I could see from the look in his eyes, he was like, dude, don't do it um and i didn't and you know i talked to the the other surgeon had a 50 euro visit with him and he said yeah you know the odds he said you know genetically the fact that she's got this problem means that she's probably got other stuff as well so i mean let's let's be real and i appreciate that right because there was the emotional uh uh, leverage that they had over me that if they if they framed it differently not that i would have spent that money but they could have made it more difficult although i would have called them out on it, and i think a lot of people wouldn't you know that it's a very vulnerable situation and one of the points this article makes is that we we think of our pets now as children reading from the article he said uh, he says this is not a dilemma that early veterinarians wrestled with The American vet of 150 years ago was more of a mechanic than a physician. He focused solely on economically valuable creatures like cows and horses, administering strong laxatives or cauterizing open wounds, etc., so they could continue to work. Healing a dog or a cat would have made about as much sense as bandaging up a pet rock. But as livestock disappeared from the cities in the turn of the 20th century, the vets turned to pets to save their profession. Uh, this is when dogs and cats began moving indoors. Owners were buying pet food and toys, and they started looking for doctors who would treat their pets like members of the family. Uh, and vet schools began teaching companion animal medicine. And so the industry changed from farm animals who were working animals to um, home animals who are more emotional, uh, you know, more Uh, The the relationship between human and beast, which had been economic, was now sentimental. Now, why am I talking about all this? Um, I just came home from uh, visiting my folks in Los Angeles. They're in their 70s. And so there are the, you know, uh, unavoidable... Questions, you know, you see your parents getting older and older and you think about what's coming down the road And I was reminded of a, a letter to the editor that was published in 2001 that my father wrote um, To um, the Harrisburg Patriot News when they were living in Pennsylvania. I'll read you the letter. It's it's short. It says uh, dear editor I put my golden retriever to sleep today permanently He was a very dear friend. We'd spent 13 years together. He had kidney failure and increasingly labored breathing caused by liquid invading his lungs. Neither he nor I had a choice. I couldn't watch him suffer as his system poisoned his body and attacked and killed his organs. If he had been human, I wouldn't have had the humane option of euthanasia. I would have been forced to watch his deterioration and his mounting pain and mutely stand by, unable to end his prolonged suffering. Having walked through the valley of death today with my dear friend, a concern for my own death and how it will come naturally arose. Those opposed to euthanasia's intervention to end my life should mind their own business. My death is, or at least should be, my own and my family's responsibility." No one else's. I'm now 62 and looking forward. uh, Sorry. I'm now 62 and looking toward the conclusion of what has been a remarkable life. I've been fortunate enough to have married a wonderful, intelligent, and caring woman over 40 years ago. The two of us have raised two intelligent, sensitive, decent human beings. When my time comes, no one, not intervening lawyers, not judges, and not the legislature, should dare to try to decide my fate. Those who really know me are fully capable of doing that, my wife and children. If necessary, I want the opportunity to stop the pain, my family's, and mine. Let me die with dignity, not languish as a victim of technologically sterile corporate medicine. Let me find the peace that my friend found today. Let me, too, die in the arms of someone who loves me while they rub my head and cry over my leaving. That's how my death should find me, with dignity and with my best friends. At a time like that, who needs strangers? Certainly not me. My father wrote that in two thousand one he's um uh, gone through another dog and uh is on a third right now who's starting to show her age as well since he wrote that um so these things are coming down the river you know you see them coming and there's nothing you can do about it. You're not sure when it's gonna hit, but you know it's coming so you try to prepare as best you can and you hope that um that your parent and your your Other family members have made preparations themselves. Now, here's where things get weird. I went out to my car and found an envelope under the windshield wiper that just said, Dr. Ryan. And I open it, and there's a three-page typed letter. And I don't know who it came from. No clue Uh, but I believe that this person left this letter because they want me to share it with you so that's what I'm gonna do Um, it says first I need to tell you a little about my mother she was a young child during the depression and after her father was killed when she was just a baby she and her sister were raised by my grandmother A strong, independent, happy woman who was a school teacher. My grandmother was determined that her daughters would go to college, and they both excelled and acquired advanced degrees. My mother did a lot of amazing things in her life. She was an adventurer, a political activist, the cool mom. My sister and I always felt that we had some big shoes to fill. My mother was a lifelong atheist, and found any type of religion or spirituality to be very distasteful. She expressed as she grew older that she was satisfied with her life, her turn as she put it, and she was all right with her mortality. Many times throughout my life I heard her express her support for self-determination in regards to end of life. She was very pragmatic. I always remember when the media responded with horror to the incident, where the soccer team crashed in the Andes and some of the passengers made jerky from the bodies of the deceased team members in order to survive. Um, I remember that. There was a book called Alive by Piers Paul Reed about that incident. I remember that from my childhood. Anyway, back to the letter. My mother said that if she were ever to fly over the Andes, she would pin a note to her shirt granting permission to be eaten in the event of her death. <laughs> That's great. Uh, uh she was also a supporter of Dr. Jack Kevorkian. Additionally, she told me many times that her biggest fear was becoming a burden to anyone. She did not want her loved ones to ever suffer or struggle on her behalf. I was with her the day she got the diagnosis. It was cancer. And they said most likely she would die within a few months. Treatment options were not good, but could possibly give her a few extra months. She was in her 80s, and frankly, I was expecting this to happen. I suppose in some respects, I'd been expecting this my whole life. I remember, as a small child, learning that I was going to die, eventually, someday, as was everyone I knew. Somehow, before that, I had the impression that some people got sick and died. But I didn't know that this was guaranteed to happen to me and my family. I was terror-stricken. Throughout my life, the thought of my own mortality would typically send me into a panic attack if I allowed myself to indulge it for more than a moment. I always felt that people who do not experience this have been protected by a thick layer of denial. Over the years, I've approximated coming to terms with my mortality by accepting the reality on a rational level and realizing there's nothing to be gained by indulging the thoughts that lead to this existential panic. I had noticed her symptoms in recent decline and was expecting a diagnosis like this. So yes, it was finally happening. My mother was going to die. And I felt surprisingly calm and unsurprised, as was she. We were both kind of like, well, sure enough, here it is. My mother stated that she did not want to pursue any treatment, and then she asked about physician-assisted suicide. In the state where we lived, this was not legal. The doctor became flustered. He acted as though she just asked him if he smoked crack and frequented child prostitutes. "Uh, That's illegal here, he said. No, no, that's not possible. My mother lived for over a year. It was a very long year. My mother very much wanted to remain at home and we made that happen. My sister took a leave of absence and moved in with her to provide 24 hour care. And I would relieve her every other week for a four day stretch when things became more challenging. Hospice nurses would come by every few days to help with bathing and to check in on her status. It was wonderful to have those three months together. Sorry, it was wonderful to have those months together. Holidays were observed for the last time and savored. But then the months dragged on, relentless, and my mother slowly deteriorated. The care was exhausting. We couldn't leave her alone for a moment. Because she couldn't reliably walk unattended. Despite repeatedly eliciting assurances from her that she would not attempt it, she would try to stand and walk the minute we turned our backs. Her impulse was to do things for herself, including ideas about running errands in her car, as she did not want to burden us. At the same time, we knew that a fall could be devastating and a broken hip would land her back in the hospital where she didn't want to be. There were physical ordeals and indignities, like bouts of severe constipation caused by the morphine, and these required manual extraction of feces by a hospital nurse. There was pain, but the worst was the losing of her mind. She knew it was happening, but she couldn't control it. She became convinced that her home was not really her home, that her simple one-story house was part of a care facility with other floors and staff. She'd always had a phenomenal sense of direction. But now she felt that her house was located a few blocks away from its true location and that it was turned 90 degrees. We'd worked so hard to fulfill her desire to stay at home, and she had the delusion of being in the facility anyway. In conversation, she began to confuse people. Speaking of my sister as though she were the long-dead sister of my mother, she tried hard to be pleasant but it was often apparent that she was confused, frightened, and in pain. One morning she began to complain that someone had written on the floor in her bathroom. What does it say? I asked. She described to me the most horrific biblical quotations about repentance, hell, Jesus. She was very upset that anyone would do something like this. Of course, there was nothing there. But surely my mother had entered her own version of hell. And that's when I knew it was time. To help her fulfill her wishes. I couldn't discuss this with my sister. She was an emotional wreck and not as pragmatic about these things as I am. I guess it's time to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a vet. I know a thing or two about euthanasia, a death that avoids pain and distress. We all have to die. Why would we want our loved ones to experience pain and distress? I've euthanized hundreds of animals some to alleviate suffering, but others for mere expediency, to diagnose a disease that could affect other animals in the group, or simply because it was someone's property and they wanted the animal dispatched. I'm sometimes haunted by the thought of all this animal blood that's on my hands, lethal injection, asphyxia, the captive bolt gun. Not all these euthanasias go smoothly. In fact, Avoiding pain and distress and distress is a very difficult thing. Despite all this, ever since my mom got the diagnosis and brought up doctor assisted suicide, I decided that I would help her if it came to that. I knew how to help and I didn't want her to suffer. I needed to do some research, but it must be totally undetectable and humane. Injections were out, there's too much evidence. I remember that years ago I'd read that the Hemlock Society advocated taking an overdose of barbiturates and then tying a plastic bag over your head. I wanted to do more research, but now I was terrified to do an internet search. I didn't want to leave any evidence. So occasionally when I was in a hotel, I would do some research on their lobby computer. What I learned was that the best method was to use some sort of depressant, in this case morphine, since she was already taking that and then fill a bag with helium. Helium. It amused me to think about one's final goodbye cruel world being spoken in a high-pitched helium voice. The advantage of helium is that you avoid the sensation of air hunger, that suffocating feeling. I had seen this in animals being asphyxiated with various gases, and it appears to be very distressful as you can imagine. Helium can be purchased in a small cylinder for blowing up balloons, in many places apparently, but I was afraid to purchase it. On those detective shows, it seems they always bust people based on some purchase or internet search. I wanted to help her pass peacefully, but I didn't want to become a martyr for the cause. I began to research what a lethal dose of morphine would be. You often hear of people saying they just mercifully increase the morphine until the patient passes peacefully. I think that's somewhat bullshit. If the person was going to die anyway, then yes, high levels of morphine can slumber them into their death. But if they're not about to die, then it will just cause sleepiness and terrible constipation, but not death. I decided I needed a combination of morphine and the plastic bag, as per the Hemlock Society's recommendation. I would have liked to have had a clear-eyed conversation about all this with my mom. That was my fantasy, that she would ask me to do it, and that we would collaborate. But it seemed we were beyond rational conversations at this point. She was living moment to moment and seemed to have lost sight of the big picture. The last time she'd brought up doctor-assisted suicide to a hospice nurse was many months before. I tried to tell her ixnay on those questions, fearing that her eventual death may be scrutinized, and I did say talk to me, but it never happened. When I arrived for my weekend duty, I found my sister in a terrible state. She was just heartbroken to see our mother so confused, frightened, and suffering. I realized I would not be able to return for another two weeks, and I quickly decided there was really no reason to prolong this anymore. If this were my pet dog, I would not have dreamed of letting it get to this point. So why would I allow my mother to suffer so? when all her life she had clearly indicated that she would not want this to happen. I tucked her in for bed and brought her all her usual pills. The morphine was the liquid. I said, the doctor said you could have more morphine if you want, which was true. And so I mixed up a whole bunch in this little glass of wine. Do you want it? I was trying to elicit her consent. It was about 50 times the dosage of morphine that she'd been taking regularly. She looked at the glass and smiled. Should I? She seemed mischievous, mischievous, and giggled a little. Were we agreeing on this? Was she understanding my thinly veiled intent? She drank the whole thing. We chatted until she dozed off. My palms were sweating. I waited two hours. Her breathing was very slow, but it persisted. I lifted her hand, shook her, tried to rouse her, but she appeared to be truly unconscious. I went to the closet and extracted a dry-cleaning bag from a garment. I secured it over her head and around her neck, tight enough that air couldn't escape, but not so tight that it would apply any pressure on her neck. I sat next to her on the bed, and in soft light I watched the bag turn opaque as it steamed with her breath. I held her hand. Her breathing became more and more labored. Then the thing I dreaded. Was this air hunger? She began to vocalize and stir. Ah, ah, it was horrible. But I knew there was no turning back. I squeezed her hand and we wrote it out. Did I speak to her? Yes, I think I reassured her that everything was okay. Fortunately, she did not regain consciousness. She did not rise. Eventually, she was still. I remained holding her hand for a long time. I called my sister at daybreak. She came right over and I told her the truth. We cried and she said I'd done the right thing. The mortuary came to get my mom, there were no questions. Hospice came and collected all their equipment and leftover drugs. It's been a few years now, and part of me wants to tell everybody because I think it's crazy that we provide humane death for animals but not for humans. I think I did the right thing, but toward the end, my mom was not the person she had been before, and communication had become so difficult. As time has passed, I remember her more clearly before her decline. And I feel confident that that person would have approved wholeheartedly. I'm holding on to that. My other take-home has been to stock up on helium. You never know when you might need it. That's it. Now, as I said at the beginning, I have no idea who left this note on my car. Someone, apparently, who knows someone who knows where I live or what my car looks like or whatever. But... Clearly, they wanted me to share their story. So I have. Sorry to bum you out if uh, if it bummed you out. But, you know, if 40, 50, 60,000 people listen to this podcast, statistically, a lot of you are dealing with something like this or are about to or recently did um, because we all do and uh this person thought that uh that their story could be helpful, so i hope it I hope it was and is and I hope that uh <laughs> that this strange country that we live in, those of us who are in the United States, can somehow find the wisdom to allow us to treat our family with the same compassion that we um, we bring to treating pets. Strange thing to say, isn't it? Strange thing to think about. I mean, the way this country deals with death is just so pathological. Now they're having all these issues with executions. I mean, what is a clearer indication of how fucked up and strange this place is you know we're we're shipping all these bombs to Israel even as i speak so they can blow up more people in the gaza strip by the way i love how the israelis tell the gazans to you know you better get out of there we're going to blow this shit up there's nowhere they can go that's like telling a an animal in a cage you better get out of there i'm going to start shooting there's nowhere to go all the borders are closed they can't even like go go into the Mediterranean on their boats. There are Israeli warships there blasting them out of the water. So and I'm not taking a position on any war. I'm not a fan of Hamas. I, you know, I know it's a complicated situation. I'm just saying the United States is the world leader in blowing people up. We know how to do it better than anyone. We do it by remote control from the other side of the fucking planet. But we can't figure out how to execute prisoners without putting them into two-hour convulsions. Something's really fucked up in the political process that, uh, you know, makes highly efficient killing machines for people in the Afghani mountaintops, but uh, can't figure out how to do it in a prison in Missouri. Very strange. So that's it. I'm not going to... uh, This will just be a special episode. I'm just going to throw it right up. No sponsors. No guests. No nothing. Because who the hell wants to be? Who the the hell wants this to be the intro to their their conversation? Uh, So we'll just make this a special episode. Uh, Again, I apologize if this bummed you out. You you never know what you're going to hear when you download the podcast, but. I kind of feel like uh, someone went to a lot of trouble to, to get me that story, and the least I can do is um, fulfill their, their desire that, that I use this little soapbox I'm standing on to, uh, to make sure some people hear it, because I think it will comfort some of you. Uh, at least I hope so. Thanks for listening.
1: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away but we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Say. dance into the ground